Welcome to the Veteran Founder Podcast on the Startup Radio Network. Starting a company allows you to be back in control. The weekly show that brings together military spouse and veteran founders who are doing remarkable things in the business world. I can't imagine there's anything out there stronger than the bond that military and veteran entrepreneurs have. We'll hear their story, the story of their business, and lessons learned. Joy can override the worries and depression. Here are your hosts, Carmen Nazario and Josh Carter. Welcome to the Veteran Founder Podcast. It is Friday. It is 1 p.m. on the West Coast. Appreciate you tuning in. If you're unfamiliar, I am your host, Josh Carter. Carmen is off this week. I think she's taking the summer off. We'll hopefully see her back in the fall. If you're unfamiliar with the show, welcome. Every Friday, we bring in these remarkable founders that are doing amazing things that just happen to have something extra on their resume, which includes a service to our country. And this week, we have a returning guest, Tonio DiSorrento of Vimo. Welcome, sir. Thank you for having me, Josh. Yeah, I'm really excited to have you back. Uh, and I'm sure a lot of people are really eager to hear all the progress you've made. But let's do a little bit of, uh, of refresher Tell us a little bit about your background, your military service, and what got you in the military. Sure thing. So I'm originally from upstate New York, grew up in a family of people who had served, not career people, but they'd all uh, had some experience. My father and his brother, for example, both Vietnam era uh, U.S. Marine Corps veterans and um, spoke fondly of the service. So it's something I wanted to experience. I knew uh, growing up. Uh, for college, I attended the Naval Academy in Annapolis, graduated from there, got a commission in the Marine Corps, and was assigned to field artillery, where I served as an artillery officer for about six and a half years before I transitioned to what I, you know, a future life as a, as a lawyer um, before I was an entrepreneur. Great. What did you do while you were in, uh, in the Marine Corps? I was an artilleryman, um, so I was... A forward observer, fire direction officer, battery executive officer, platoon commander in artillery batteries at Camp Lejeune, North Carolina in the 10th Marine Regiment and, uh, deployed a couple of times, all peace in my case. Uh, although there were wars happening, I didn't visit any of them, um, with my batteries and then was an instructor at the field artillery school at Fort Sill, Oklahoma, teaching Army wow. and Marine Corps lieutenants how to go um, serve as officers in the fleet. I had a great experience. I look back on it very fondly. I'm in touch with a ton of my old Marines. Um, I'm very glad I did it. That's awesome. And when you got out, you, uh, you were a captain, right? That's right. Nice. When you got out, it looks like, uh, you got, you got into law. What, what drew you into law? What I knew was, well, I thought I was missing the war. I figured, you know, the, the, the war came, I missed it, time to find another job. Uh, who knew we would still be at war so many years later? It's terrible, but who knew? Um, and uh, I thought, I got to learn something new. I want to get great at a desk job, one that I've trained for, and one that where I can provide for my family, be engaged, stimulated, challenged. This is pre-financial crisis, and I was looking at things like investment banking and law. And I chose law on the belief that the assumption that the culture would be better than that of banking. And I would say it's marginally better. Um, but they're both, they're both difficult, you know, financial services law are both challenging. Every kind of professional service demands a lot of people 
um, you know, as a student, as an entry level person and to stay on top. But I went to law, I got out of the Marine Corps, went to Georgetown law in DC thinking that was a great way for me to transition from artillery to general civilianship. Nice. And what did you, what did you get out of the, your time as a lawyer? Did you, did you feel like that that was, um, setting you up for your next venture, which was Vimo or was this, was just this a stopgap before you got to Vimo? I had no idea there would ever be a Vimo. So from law, <laughs> I, I learned a bunch of things. I learned about excellence and work product. You know, the military is famous for, in the Marine Corps, they would say all the time, 85% solution well executed. By only yep. executed beats that perfect solution that takes forever. Law, you're a little closer to the perfect solution. You know, uh, it's worth being perfect on a thing. If billions of dollars are moving on the paper, you write. And, um, and so I was trained to a higher level of excellence in my work product. And I was very grateful for that. First, I mean, it was tough. It was, it was shocking. The quality mm. of work expected. I couldn't believe that everybody wanted everything to be so great and right all of the time, but also pretty quick, which required us then to just like work overnight to hit the deadline. Um, I was really impressed by that. I was really impressed by the you know, a, a thing I took. So I guess one thing I took away was what right looks like, what excellence feels like in work product. Another thing I took away was respect, great respect for people, regardless of where they're coming from, their viewpoint. We had a, I was at a global law firm. We had offices all over the world, both in law school and at this law firm. I was working with people who probably didn't agree with me on what color the sky was on a given day. You know, everybody comes from different places. Um, it's a big, diverse firm with lots of diverse people and diverse points of view. And yet, brilliant, right? Brilliant. Taught me everything I could possibly learn. And it gave me great respect. I hope, I, hope I you know, everybody feels the same way about it. It worked with me. Great respect for mm-hmm. people coming from everywhere. There's a reason. You know, these people are, sometimes people think, well, if you disagree with me about something outside of work, you know, maybe you must be, you know, bad faith or you must be a little dumb. And law, law school and working at a law firm permanently disabused me of that. These were brilliant people who came to different conclusions about big things, which forced me to uh, really open my mind. And I thought that was special. And the third thing was the clients. They awesome clients, brilliant bankers, business people who had great ideas, executed them well great vision. You know, um, it, I got to see a lot of that at a law firm, any professional services firm you see inside a bunch of other companies in that span, um, in a very short time frame. And so in about five years at a law firm, I saw inside very many companies and that definitely helped me, um, be prepared for something like Vimo, something, you know, entrepreneurial where, seeing how so many other people had raised money, had structured a, a new product, a financial product, had um, hired people by serving as outside counsel for them, had dealt with adversity or challenges that came up, disputes. It, I learned a ton from them. So I, I, I would say the people who taught me the most after my fellow lawyers would be the clients. It's awesome. What was the transit? What was sort of the impetus to creating Vivo, like why why this space? What was the need you were you're trying to solve? Yeah, that's a good one. Um, because people, we, we at Vimo, we 
use this contract called income share agreements. It's where you pay a share of your future earnings later in exchange for some upfront, something upfront today, usually educational services, so tuition. And people then say, well, that's kind of like a student loan. So the problem is people need to pay for school. They don't have the money. They need this thing. I think it's different. I, as a lawyer, I got to work with a bunch of people who were inspired by this idea, pay for success tuition. Um, but those people were going to market with a different concept, really, a concept that was student loan alternative. Wouldn't this be a more humane student loan? You don't have to pay if you don't earn. You pay more if you do earn. So it's like progressive in, in payment. It's a progressive student loan. Wouldn't that be great? It wasn't great enough. So nobody built a successful business in it. None of my customers, who, my clients in the law firm who tried that built a business out of it. And it hit me over the head at one point that that really wasn't the problem to solve with this. The problem to solve is how do you pick a quality school? And I'm not talking between you know Harvard and Princeton. There's a category of school that sells prestige. And they don't even charge enough money for it. You know, the USC... Uh, admission scandal helps yep. shows you that people would pay some multiple of whatever the tuition is to be assured of acceptance for their child at, at one of these places that sells prestige. But that's not where most people go. Most people, including transitioning veterans and the listeners here, you're going to schools that are helping you prepare for a specific career, or if not a specific one, certainly one that that promises upward economic mobility. You know, you're looking, so you, there's a workforce outcome desired, not just an academic credential. This isn't something people are doing to find themselves or as a hobby in many cases. The majority of the, of the students in higher ed in the United States, in fact, are non-traditional students. They're people who work, who have children, families, work experience, have attended other schools before. And those people today have a, a devilish time choosing a school. They're picking between the school with the best television ad and the one with the most aggressive boiler room instead of choosing the one most likely to get them the career they are aiming for. If we worked with schools, I thought, with this company, Vimo, particularly in that tier of school, the kind of school who helps people find and get good jobs, then we could let them charge some or all of their tuition only as a percent of graduates' earnings, meaning you only pay for this school if it works. And that would help them cut through the noise and reach students. And for students, prospective students, that's the best school for them to be going to. You want to go to the place that will take a risk on you, the one that is aligned with getting you the job you're looking for. And so we built Vimo, uh, my my co-founders and I built Vimo to – help schools who want to do the right thing succeed at that. Wow. And what have been some of the success stories? Like what are the metrics? How do you, how do you measure success? We think about a few things. And the one is in the skills based market. So think about code boot camps, data science boot camps, other kinds of skills based credentials that are supposed to lead to workforce outcomes. We think about, market adoption. We started this company um, late 2015, got in the market in the middle of 2016. And at that time, there were only one or two schools even trying something like this. Um, and I would say, if you look around in 2020, you can't run a school 
at least on the technology side of skills-based training. Without this, students expect it as table stakes. And they're not, not that every student wants it. That's the important thing. We don't measure, like, does every student want to pay this way? Because it's not the best way for everybody to pay. You know, it's, you might, if you might have money in your pocket, you might have employer pay money. Maybe there's a state or federal program that will pay a veteran's benefit. You know, no need to pledge a percentage of your earnings then on top of that. But knowing that it is available at a school, that a school is willing to invest in its students, changes how people think about the school. Schools know that. And now we've seen broad adoption across that, that segment of schools. And so that's one big success thing. Second one was, you know, honestly, will students even pay on these things? If they take a contract, will it work? Nobody's ever done it before at any kind of scale. We've seen that this has gone about as we thought it would. So people have been pretty great about it. Um, and that it really, the school really does matter. We had a thesis that the school matters a lot, not just what you study. And depending on what you study and where you study it and then, you know, what school segment you're in, it does matter. We see the school management teams who really lean into this. They're not just doing, working with Vimo. They're not just using income share agreements to meet students' needs. It's part of a bunch of things they are doing, like working closely with employers to get you good jobs. So, We've been really pleased that the schools choosing us are also choosing lots of other things that are good for their students and graduates. And so we're seeing success. We're seeing them succeed. And I think um, the last piece, though, is, is higher ed, traditional higher education. And how do we get in there and make a difference for them? And we're seeing when we started this, it was hard to get them to believe us about any of this or to trust us. The first schools who tried it really wanted to do it their own way. Maybe not listen to a bunch of untested startup people on how to run their school. And of course it takes an academic year to make an academic year's worth of data. So it, it took us years to prove that the things we're recommending can help schools and their students in the traditional higher ed space by improving who chooses your school and how long they stay there, how and when they graduate. So getting to graduate on time, not drop out over, over finances, and giving the school real feedback on outcomes. That, inc that helps colleges increase their state or federal revenue that they get from things like completion in a state legislature, in a public school maybe, or from federal grants or loan money that might come from students coming to your school, staying there, and succeeding there. So we've been able to prove that. We're now able to charge a fair price for what the value we create is at these higher education institutions. We had a real business. Not just um, a startup that, you know, we're not just like iterating on some idea. We have real customers who trust us. We're charging them a fair price and they're getting great value and helping a lot of students. And I think those are all the things we would count as proof points. Yeah. Oh, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, how has COVID impacted you recently? Like what, what are you seeing with this new dynamic of, you know, clearly universities, secondary education, they're really struggling with how to react and how to do in-person uh, education and, and programming. How, how, is, how has that impacted the programs and the, and the offerings that you guys provide to schools and students? We've found it to be about neutral to our company, but it's a balance of a bunch of things. Inside the company, because we... Our operations center is just outside Tampa. We have to do 
um, and, we're, and we're security audited and we need to be redundant. Every quarter we were doing disaster drills where we would go remote for a day and make sure everything worked. Turns out we needed it. We went remote one day in March and put the switch and everything went fine. So, and the people here have worked really hard and been even more productive during COVID than they were before. So people at Vimo stepped up, made this work despite what else was going on in their families. And we haven't had employees affected directly by the virus. Thank goodness. That's outside great. of That's Vimo. Yeah. Thank you. Two big customer segments here, macro segments. One would be those skills-based providers. A lot of them were, were already great or getting great at delivering um, education online or at least partially online. And so they coped very well with the need to be online. And also they coped, they, they were in the right place, right time for displaced workers who wanted to reskill or upskill during the, during the quarantine. And so about half of our business, the customers were booming during COVID because they were ready and they were exactly what everybody needed out in the economy for this. I would say the other half, traditional colleges, they had to spend a good month uh, clearing their campuses of people. A lot of the quarantines hit right during spring break. Um, so they all had to plan for how they were going to finish their semester online. Really hard for them. I don't sell online education, so I wasn't the top person they were dialing and looking for, you know, at first there in March. Mm-hmm. And they had to spend about a month under their desk in the fetal position. Um, <laughs> sad because <laughs> they're losing all this revenue from their dormitories, right. cafeterias, parking lots. They're having to furlough their friends. It's brutally difficult because you're talking about a lot of mission driven people who work at these private nonprofits all over the country and all they yeah. get out of, out of working there is, is a, they, they get good feelings. They, they're, they're not paid richly and right. as administrators. And so this was just so difficult for them. And all we could really do is pray for them. I mean, there's, they were just in, in a terrible place as people and as institutions. We now see here in June, those schools are coming back up. They realize, you know, nobody's going to save them from this straight up. They're going to have to go out there and find a way to win this fall meet students and parents' needs, be safe, be safe for their faculty, for their administrators, particularly who might be from high-risk groups. And um, and we see them going out there and playing offense, and I respect it a ton. So we're engaged right now with a ton of colleges, who are a ton, dozens of colleges who are leaning into the fall and, and being really constructive about those plans. Now, one thing that kind of broke our way as a company that I would never wish on the world because everybody had to go online, people are questioning, why is my college so expensive? Right. What's the value here? We know that for many of our colleges, there really is a ton of value there. What they do is hard to do. It's expensive to do. Just keeping that great faculty they have assembled. Um, and they're investing no less in student success now or next fall than they were last year. When we have our product in the mix, they get to say for some or all of this, you only have to pay if it works. And if it works, means if you get a job at the end. And that is speaking the language of students and parents who are properly spooked right now about employment prospects for young grads and probably will be for another 10 years after this. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So we've been listening to Tonio DiSorrento from Vimo Education. We're going to take a quick commercial break. We'll be back right after this. 
This hour of the Startup Radio Network is supported by Bridges to Change. Bridges to Change's mission is to strengthen individuals and families affected by addictions, mental health, poverty, and homelessness. They use their voice and resources to stand up to all forms of discrimination, mass incarceration, barriers to health care, and inequitable economic opportunities. Bridges to Change's goal is to empower people to be self-sufficient and become members of the community, who in turn offer the same opportunities to help others. They strive to have everyone leaving their organization with stable housing, social support, sustainable employment, education, access to health care, family engagement, and goals for the future. To get involved, donate, or to get help, make sure to visit www.bridgestochange.com. All right, and we're back. We've been talking to Tonio DiSorrento of Vimo Education here on the Veteran Founder Podcast. Uh, Tony, I want to talk a little bit about, uh, this, there's this debate that is ongoing and depending on who you talk to, uh, articles you read about the value of a four year degree. And you just touched on this a little bit ago, how COVID is sort of re- having people reassess the value of the, of their tuition. Uh, where I know you guys offer this incredible service, but how is that debate if at all, impacts your ability to articulate the value of a four-year degree? It's pretty central to it, Josh. So we look at four-year college, and if you go out on the Internet, you can find you know, data to support almost any viewpoint, but you're going to hear mine here. Empirically, college is always worth it when it works. Define that, though. What does what it works mean? It means when you finish college, when you finish on time with a four-year degree, if you take eight years to get a four-year degree, now, well, that's not, that's, that's a different value prop. If you go to school for two and a half years and drop out, never finish, that's not the same either. And so when people say college is worth it empirically, they're saying it's worth it for people who attend college, focus on that and succeed there, graduate. And I think the takeaway for the would-be learner, maybe a veteran who's thinking about transitioning, attending college, is that it matters where you go. Some places do a lot more and better for their students than others, and that can be because they're just better at it. Sometimes they have more or or fewer resources um, to invest in student success. But if you look at a college that has a 25% graduation rate, um, six-year graduation rate for a four-year degree, you must think you're pretty special. You're going to be one of those lucky few who make it, right? Instead of going to a place where more than half the people are graduating in four to six years with a four-year degree. I think that's a huge um, distinction. Yeah. And because um, people who are always worse off, people who get debt with no credential, that's not helpful at all. You know, and then I think the longer you spend in school, there's just a, a crazy opportunity cost to your life. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting debate. On the one hand, I, the way I look at college is the way I look at the military almost, right? You end up with this network of people that you go through at a certain amount of time. And at the end of that time, you leave there with these this incredible network of people. Same could be said about the military. We go through the military. We spend a certain banked amount of time. You're not in there forever. And when you leave the military, you leave with this network of incredible people with diverse backgrounds that go on to do different things. So 
I get that. Um, and I really think that you're spot on. And I think, you know, Washington, uh, Washington Journal, the Post, the New York Times, they've all done pieces about this debate about which side. And I think the, the thing, the takeaway that I've seen from all of them, uh, even if they're out there just debating whether it's worth it, the takeaway seems to be the financial component that the, to your point, those that finish end up on average making, you know, what is it around 900,000 on average in their career versus those that don't. And in a recession, like we're finding ourselves in now, those are typically the folks that uh, are more appealing to an employer than those that have not gone through a four year, uh, don't have a four year degree. Would you agree with that assessment? I do. And, and I, uh, looking at this purposefully, you know, the difference between the huge difference is obviously you got paid to join the Navy. I got paid to join the Marine Corps and you pay the other, them to go to the college. And so you don't want to treat it like a rock tumbler. You're going to just show up and stay there until you're done and, you know, go in in any condition, not knowing what you're meant to be. I think going in purposefully ready to learn and ready to um, focus on it would help people be a lot more successful than people in general are. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense. All right. So we talked a little bit about the education piece, uh, your value. I want to talk to you. You're a returning guest, as we mentioned. What has progress been, what progress have you made from the year and a half, I think now that you, from that time that you've been on the show to now? How many new schools are you in? How many new programs have you, have you guys created? How much progress have you made? Yeah, I think my last visit was November 2018. And, yeah. um, man, time flies when you're having fun. Literally flies. I'll tell you, uh, <laughs> one milestone for the company was we, we closed, uh, equity financing. So we raised a series A and we didn't do any press on it. Uh, it was probably my first time talking about it. Wow. Congrats. Yeah. Thanks. It was, it was special because it validated that we were building something real. We were joined in the round. Some investors we really respected joined that round. And, um, we continue to be living on that money. So uh, we've also, I would say, you can count how many, you know, logos you put up, but I think counting also how we've run the place. I think we're, we still have another 30 months runway on that financing from November, 2018. And that is not typical for startups like ours. Normally people run out of the money. They spend all the money in 18 to 24 months. And um, we're very fortunate, of course, coming through COVID that we weren't having to raise money right now. Because mm-hmm. who knows? And also, given that it takes the reselling to colleges, and if you miss them, there's a lot of seasonality. You can only catch the academic year at certain points of the year, and then you're, you know, you're put off till the next academic year to launch at a school. And this buys us a lot. We've bought ourselves a lot of time here to, to get to schools and um, prove that we're helpful and validate ourselves. We have to try to raise money again or, or sell the company or something in terms of building the business, the proof points there. Yeah. Our revenue our 19 revenue was good growth over 2018 revenue. It's about 300% growth. So about four X. Wow. The, yeah. That revenue. Now it's still modest numbers and I'm not going to name them here. Um, because so the only people who, who write that stuff down are competitors and, uh, <laughs> competitors, journalists, you know, uh, my customers don't care, but, uh, but I'll say, you know, we, we saw some growth there. We should see good growth again this year. Um, even in, in, in the face of uh, COVID-19 and 
the thing that I think is most important is from 2018 to 2019 to today, we've added a bunch of college partnerships and the nature of those partnerships has deepened. So we are being trusted to do more with our school partners. When we were, uh, when I talked to you in 2018, we were doing one year deals with schools. We said, Hey, give us a shot. Let us try this thing. And, uh, if we don't let you down, maybe you'll use it again next year. And now we are signing three, five, even 10 year deals with wow. schools to operate toward, to operate a program, an income share agreement program on some strategically valuable objective of theirs. And we're getting paid for our success at that. So the schools are trusting us not to be some kind of tool vendor, interchangeable tool vendor. Um, and they're, they're trusting us at the low end, at least as a solution owner, solution provider, and at the high end as a problem owner. This is going to get solved. Vimo's doing it. And we needed that here. We needed to be the ones close to our customer, making them heroes and uh, being trusted year over year at these institutions. And that's the, the biggest thing. Because once you have that in my market, which is higher ed, going to colleges, you kind of keep it. They don't turn that off unless you do something terrible. Um, we treat them great. They're happy. They serve as excellent references for us. And it, it lets us count on being here in the future. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense. What are some of the things you've learned in this process? What are some of the failures and things that, you know, you, you probably won't do that again if uh, presented the opportunity again? Um, I've, I've thought a couple times. I thought I could just solve a problem by dropping some money on it, whether it's through an expensive hire or a vendor. Like, oh, I just want this to work. And I just push a button. As if I could push a button and somebody else will figure this out. We're, we are the first... We're kind of trailblazing our little category here. As little as we are, we're the biggest people ever to do what we are doing, these income share agreement programs for colleges. And uh, expecting other people to solve that those problems for us as they come up is probably unrealistic. It's always mm-hmm. tempting, especially if you have money in the bank, just drop some money on a thing and you know cross your fingers. But it hasn't worked for us. So I, that's one learning. A second learning is, which functions are we doing here that are valuable, like more or less valuable to our customers and which things do we really need to have at the company? Because we were kind of attacking in every direction for a little while and didn't know exactly how to focus or even exactly what to prioritize in the company. And since late 2018, we, I think we've really found our footing here. We, we know exactly where we want to focus in terms of the value layer for our customer and the customer segments where we can be successful. And we've done a decent job of staffing to those, without overstaffing to them. Yeah, that's, that's great. And you guys have a pretty diverse workflow, work, uh, workforce. I would imagine, given that you were, in, you were employed in one of the most diverse uh, workforce, the U.S. military, that that just sort of value is what bleeds into your, your into Vino. I'm very fortunate that we do have a pretty diverse workforce, uh, both in terms of male, female, and, and other, and in terms of ethnic and racial composition. It helps that we have offices in a couple different cities and that we uh, have lots of different specialties represented. And I have to credit my co-founders and other execs here for um, doing a good job on hiring. Awesome. I love it. Uh What's the future of Vimo? Where do you see this going in the next five to 10 years? 
or what do you aspirationally where do you hope it goes? I want to be closer than ever to the leadership of the public and private nonprofit colleges who we help um, owning strategically viable things for them, like how are they going to recruit or guard recruitment of certain student segments? How are they going to retain important targeted students? How are they going to improve their completion rates, their graduation rates? Um, and I want to be getting paid for succeeding at that here at Vimo. So that means I don't want us just going out there and taking a fee for service and letting the, letting everything land wherever it lands. I want us to help steer that with our customer fully aligned on the outcome. And, and I want to be doing it at, I don't know, fast forward in enough years, hundreds of schools, not dozens of schools. And I think that's very realistic. Uh, given the trajectory around the people here and how our customers have um, have been so great for us, if we can keep this up and can make you know uh, keep earning their trust, that's the thing that we will get to at one growth rate or another. Yeah, that's amazing. Uh, I love it. I love what you're doing. I love the the, the mission behind it. I think it's great. Um, what what's something? At, our listeners are made up primarily of of entrepreneurs or aspiring entrepreneurs, what is the one thing, one advice you would give them? Uh, something that you know now that you wish you would have known starting Vimo or anything else uh, in, in your in your entrepreneurial career. What's the one advice you wish somebody would have given you? I'm, I did receive a ton of great advice, um, but I'll, I'll give one that comes to mind today, um, which is carry the ball as far as you can on your own at the beginning of a company like this. And that's a, that's a sports metaphor. Think about in football, a person takes a ball and they run and they don't stop. Like you take it, not, it's a five yard play, but if there's nobody in front, keep running, you know, wake them tackle, you make them stop you or score. And I think people in their head, maybe write a little script of, uh, I'll go in these steps for my company and then it, I'll get help or I'll get outside money at, at certain points. But if you, you know, if you want to make a successful business, you can't let other people decide when and how you build it. Whether that's, uh, you know, it could be an investor. You say, I I'm only going to build the next part when this investor says it's cool, which means basically when an investor gives me money. You know, once I raise my seed round, you're giving them a veto on your future. The seed people might not see it, and that's okay. If they never see it, you got to find some other way to get from yeah. here to that future. One day, outside money will try to buy your thing. Whether it's a minority investment, majority investment, you know, take you over if you build a real thing. Uh, but I think a lot of times I see people giving these like little vetoes that people don't know they have on you to some investor or some partner. Once this partnership launches, then I'll quit my job and do my thing. You can totally do that, especially if you have other financial responsibilities. Entrepreneurship is scary, risky. Maybe it's not, you know, it's not for every person for every season of life. But if you do that, you put those little vetoes in other people's hands and they don't even care about you. You know, they're, they're running their lives. Mm -hmm. It's not going to happen. They're going to, your thing's going to get held up. When I was helping to start this, I really conditioned, I think a lot of what I was doing on investor approval and mm -hmm. on getting certain people to work with me. And we got here anyway, but I think it would have got here owning more of the place and maybe faster 
if I had really been firm about what I thought I needed to do and found ways to do it that didn't involve reliance on others the same way. That's, yeah, that's great advice. I love that. Yeah, I, I talk founders most of the time, nine times out of ten, away from going after investment because, as you said, you know these are folks that once they put money into your company, they're very opinionated and they're not shy about that opinion, and that can often skew the direction of your company. If you are focused on your customers from day one and you're obsessed about them, then you don't have to worry about investors coming in to be opinionated because you've proven your product, you're growing at a steady clip, you have revenue coming in. They're just there to to grab your belt loop and, and hang on for the ride, not vice versa. Yeah, I have great board of investors today. I have a fantastic composition of you know investors, governance, everything at this place. But it is the one that is on a straight line between where BMO is today and where BMO needs to be, that future you asked me about. And yeah. we, we aren't planning to like zig or zag far off of that line to please some other third party, you know, investor or otherwise between now and then. And that's what I would advise anybody. Yeah. That's some great advice. Uh, Tony, where can people find you? Well, I'm at vmo.com, vmo.com. Tonio at vmo.com is my email address. Twitter handle is at Tonio Deso, which is, T-O-N-I-O-D-E-S-O, first name, beginning my last name. Love it. Love it, Tonio. Thank you so much for coming on the show. We always love having you on. Hopefully, we don't have to wait another year and some change to have you back. I am so excited to hear of your growth, and uh, and, and congratulations on closing the round. I think that's a, that's a testament to what you guys are doing, and, and clearly people are resonating with it. So, uh, please let us know where we can be helpful and, and thanks again for coming on the show, sir. Thanks for having me, Josh. It's been a pleasure. Anytime. We've been listening to the Veteran Founder Podcast on the Startup Radio Network. Tune in next week and every week at Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific. Listen, learn, get stuff done. See you next week, guys. You're listening to the Startup Radio Network. Listen, learn, launch. 10% of our gross revenue goes directly to women entrepreneurs in developing countries around the world through Kiva's microfinance program.